to hear from God's word this morning. We seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us to do just that. Let's read it together. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Esteem wisdom, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Matthew 12. In the Blue Pew Bible, you can find it on page 838. Again, the text is Matthew 12, verses 38 through 45. In this text, the religious leaders put Jesus to the test by asking him to perform a sign. But Jesus warns them that the true faith responds to him, not by testing, but by turning from one's wayward ways and by tuning in to his unparalleled wisdom. For not only does Jesus have warnings weightier than the prophet Jonas, he also has wisdom more wondrous than King Solomon's. Like a prophet, Jesus claims to know where the world is going. And like a sage, Jesus also claims to know how the world works. In short, both Jesus' admonitions and expertise are beyond human evaluation. Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will give it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in there and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Thank you, Linda. As we turn to consider God's word this morning, we're entering into a new, uh, new time of year. We will be uh, exploring the book of James uh, in the weeks to come. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that this morning, though I want to preface or begin our series 
here in Matthew 12 for reasons that we'll see in a, in a bit here. But I want to start this morning actually with a children's story. It's a Christmas children's story. It's one that uh, Sarah um, discovered at the library and, and read to our children this past Christmas holiday. And it, and it begins with an old man, an old man who um, is in bed. It's 4 a.m. in the morning. And he, he, wakes, he woke up not because of his alarm clock or anything like that, but simply out of, out of habit. Because all his life, he had woken up around 3.30 or 4 a.m. And the reason for that was because he grew up on a farm, on a dairy farm. And his father, when he was 15, when, his, when, when he himself was 15, his father would wake him up in the morning, and they would go out together, and they would milk the cows. And he... Uh, he, um, he tells the story, there he is in bed at 4 a.m. in the morning. He, he goes back, he sort of thinks back and remembers all those years ago to when he was 15. And he recalls the several, several mornings before Christmas. He happened to wake up unexpectedly at 4 a.m. And, and started to make his way down. Usually his father had to sort of you know, push him out of bed, force him out of bed. But this particular morning, for some reason, he woke up. And as he was walking down the stairs, he heard his dad talking to his mom, saying... I wish I didn't have to wake up our son so early. I wish I could do the work by myself. I hate seeing him, you know, just, just wiped out every morning, 4 a.m., he's sleeping, he needs to sleep, he's growing. I wish, I wish he, I could just have him stay in bed. I wish I could do the work by myself. And the boy recalled that when he heard his dad say those words, he said, for the first time in my life, I realized that my dad really loved me. He said, in that same moment, I realized, too, that I love my dad. He said, the next morning, I was able to get out of bed. My dad woke me up to milk the cows like usual. He said, I, I did it in a different way. I did it out of a sense of willingness, not because I had to, but in a sense because I wanted to. Why? Because I, my dad loved me, and I loved him. And then that night, as he lay in bed Christmas Eve, he thought, I wish I could give my dad some, a gift that he really deserved. So there was a, this was a poor farming family. They didn't have much of anything. I think he'd gotten his dad like a 10-cent tie, like he usually had gotten him. He, what could I give him that would really be appropriate to show my love for him? And then the idea came. He said, what I'll do is I will wake up extra early tomorrow morning, around 2.30 in the morning. I will go out. I will milk all the cows and I'll jump back in bed before my dad knows. And so sure enough, 2.45 the next morning, he wakes up, goes out there, you know, slips on his clothes, creaks, you know, the, you know steps very careful down, carefully down the creaking stairs, goes out there, you know, gets all the work done, is able to slip back in bed just as he hears his dad get up. And his dad walks in the, in the bedroom and opens the door like usual, wake up his son. Son, um, you know, it's time to get up now. I'll start the work outside. And uh, the son pretended to be tired. Oh, okay, dad, you know, all the while smiling, realizing that what his dad would see. And just to back up, one part in the story is he goes out that morning at 2.30 in the morning. He, he realized that he was milking these cows in a way that he'd never milked them before. Milked them with a sense of joy, a sense of, of anticipation, a sense of almost laughing at not being able to wait to see what his dad would do. And he walked out and saw that all the work was done. And so sure enough, he kind of laid in bed there. And about five minutes later, his dad came back inside. And he walked into his son's room. And with a mixture of laughter and tears, 
He said, wow, you, what a surprise. And there was a moment between a father and son of such love. And, his, and, his, and right around that time, the, the, this, the, this 15-year-old boy was the, he was the oldest of all the kids. And all the, all the other kids started to wake up this Christmas morning. And, and the dad realized, he said, you know what, I don't have to, since I don't have to go, I don't have to go out to the, the barn this morning, I can actually stay here and for the first time ever see my kids um, as they come to the tree and discover Christmas morning. And later that morning, he said to his son, this is a present, this is the best Christmas present I've ever gotten. I will never forget it. Now, I tell that story because it's, it's beautiful. It's simply beautiful. And it's amazing how so many years later, as this old man is remembering the story, his dad is long gone and long passed away, and he still remembers that morning. He still remembers that act of love. He still remembers that moment when, when he realized that his dad loved him. And he loved his dad. And what's so beautiful, what's so beautiful about it is this exchange of father and son, of parent and child. And what's so beautiful is that there's no regret. No regret. All those years looking back, waking up at 2.30, the cost of being out in the cold, doing all the work by oneself. There's no regret. Why? Because it was an act of love. Was it worth the cost? Yes. Why? Because it's love. And love, listen to this, love is the way of faith. And here's the thing about faith. Faith actually works. It works. And with faith, there's no regret. See, what would happen if you and I were to realize that there is a Father who loves us deeply? Could it be possible? See, some of us, we think of God as if the taskmaster who gets us up early in the morning, right? It's work to do. You gotta get out there, it's cold. Until we realize that God actually cares. He really cares about us, that he loves us so deeply what would happen if we were to grasp a hold of a a father who loved us so deeply could it actually awaken you and me to a life of faith that leads to a life of love a life that actually works in the coming weeks, we're going to be exploring the book of James. And James is all about the life of faith. But it's not a faith that's somehow otherworldly, a faith that's sort of fire insurance to just sort of, you know, one day I won't have to go to hell. It's a faith that right here, right now, in the midst of the chaos and the confusion of life, in the midst of the struggle of life, it actually works. It's effective. This is a faith that works. James forces all of us to ask the question, what if faith works? What if it's actually effective? What if, what if faith is the way to living a life without regret? I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you think of it, you come here and you think, ah, Christianity is just something I can do every once in a while. It's a Sunday morning thing. Or maybe you think, ah, this whole thing, I'm just here. Someone asked me to be, I'm just visiting, whatever it may be. I want you to consider the question that actually faith, the life of faith, might actually be more effective, more beautiful than the life that you're living right now. So I don't know how many of you are, are, have jumped on board here this, as a congregation this year. We're reading this devotional book written by Tim Keller called God's Wisdom for Navigating Life. I'll be referring to it most every Sunday. It's a daily devotional. It takes about about 45 seconds to a minute to read. It's just simply each day, 365 days, one page. 
and Keller just most more, more days than not we're on day five it's just it's been wonderful just nails it very thoughtful and it's it's a reflection on the proverbs it's called God's wisdom God's wisdom for navigating life and it's from the proverbs meditations in the proverbs and the problems of proverbs are, of course are wisdom literature and the book of James as well is a book it's the New Testament book of wisdom because there's so much in there about living life right now. And Keller, on day four, he, wrote, he writes this, discernment, which is an aspect of wisdom, discernment is the ability to tell the difference between not just right and wrong, but also among good, better, and best. See, wisdom, a faith that has wisdom, is a faith that not only tells the difference between right and wrong, it's a faith that actually is able to go to discern what's best. What if a life of faith is a life that's actually better? Now, if James speaks of a faith that actually works, that is to say it's a faith that's effective, he is also speaking of a faith that actually works in the sense that it's active. It's a working faith. And as we'll see in James, a faith that isn't working is actually a fake faith faith. Let me explain what I mean by that. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to actually call up a teenager here. Do we have a teenager? AJ or maybe Nick? One of you guys want to be a volunteer? Uh, Nick? Nick's raised his hand already. Nick, come on up here, buddy. This is, uh, this is Nick. Are you nervous? A little bit. Yeah, good. You should be a little bit nervous. Come over here. Just stand right here. Uh, Nick, if I, listen, if I were to give you my keys, now think about this carefully, okay? I'm going to give you my keys. You don't, you don't have a car, do you? Um, no, no. No, okay, so this, is, this might be a good opportunity for you, right? So if I were to give you my, if I were to say, Nick, here, here's, here, 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 I'm going to give you my keys. I'm going to take them here. And I say, here's my car, it's yours. Now, if I were to, if I were to hold on, if I were to do that, would you, would you believe me? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> well, excellent. Why would you not believe me? Because... Yeah, yeah, okay, good. I, I got the office back. Thank you. That's great. That's right. Trust me with expense. Okay, that's good. Good. So, and, and as a pastor, you know, I mean, I, I provide for my family and things. But do I have do I have the resources simply to go out and buy cars and give cars away? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Good. Good answer. Now, but what what if though I were to give you my keys, and I said in the drink container, in the drink container in my car in the console between the two front seats, is a twenty dollar bill. And you can go out there right now, and you can grab it, if it's, and it's yours if you want it. Would you believe me? I might believe you then, yeah. You might believe Okay, so, let's, so I'll, I'll hold out the keys here, and we'll decide if he believes me. You can go right now if you want to. All right. All right, go for it. It's up to you. <laughs> all right, so go quickly. Go quick. We're all waiting, Nick. Go out there. <laughs> He's going. He's going. Hold on, Steve. Hold on. So now, so while we're waiting here, why did he go? Why did he go? Why did he work? Why did he do it? He believed me. He believed me, right? Now, let's say that he didn't believe me. What's this? He's out there. He's going to take the car and drive away. He's looking. Did he go the wrong way? Is that what he did? Oh, yeah, that's right. I should have told him which car it was. That would have been wise. I didn't put that in my notes. I just assume everyone knows the pastor's car. I don't know. So, but the idea is very simple. If you really believe something, you will do it. That real faith really works. 
It's at work. It's active. See, James wants to persuade us of two things, that faith works. He's back. Sir, did you find anything? Excellent. There you go. All right, give Nick a round of applause. Nick, go ahead and take it. There you go. So important. This is key. True faith goes to work. It takes action. Why? True faith is active because true faith is effective. It's actually better. It's wise. See, real faith sees wisdom and goes after it. See, it goes to work, even at great cost. See, importantly, this is so important. Can you guess what James would say about a faith that doesn't work? A faith that's inactive, a faith that just shows up on Sunday mornings, a faith that goes through the motions. What would he say about a faith like that? It's a faith that hasn't believed. It's a fake faith. Why? Because it hasn't believed that faith is effective, that faith really works, that in the fog and friction of life, in the struggle of life, that faith is actually more effective, it's better. See, this fake faith actually prefers a life that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It's broken. So let me ask you again this morning, what if faith actually works? What if it's really effective? What if faith is actually active? What if it actually does something? I don't know about for you, but for me, that's kind of scary. It makes me wonder, am I just, is this whole faith thing just for me a joke? Will I be found out one day to be a fraud? My faith is just convenient. It's selective. It's sort of self-selective thing, selective obedience. It's convenient. But James is going to force us to ask difficult questions. Is my faith at work? Is my, does my faith work? In the midst of chaos and confusion, does faith just go out the window? Or am I realizing actually this more than ever in the fog and friction of life? My faith is working. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's holding me. It's encouraging me. It's guiding me. So James will maintain that faith works. Why? Because of something called wisdom. True faith gives us access to true wisdom. And James is all about it. He's all about wisdom. But to receive this true wisdom, we have to have true faith. I'm going to spend some time looking at Matthew here. Not too long. It doesn't take too long. It's very simple. I want to look at the idea of what true faith is. Because here in this passage, we get confronted with, with false or fake faith and true faith. See, the opposite of true faith is not atheism. It's not unbelief. The opposite of true faith, are you ready? It's self-trust. The opposite of true faith is trusting oneself. And, here's, and I want you to hear the self-trust, gang. Self-trust is deadly. Self-trust leaves us in our little echo chamber. Do you know what an echo chamber is? It's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's something, you, you say something and so you hear all the words back at you. And to be left in our echo chamber is to, is to only and ever hear what we want to hear. We know people like this. And every morning in the mirror, you may actually look at one. Are you someone who can actually hear? See, real faith is a faith that listens. 
And we see that all the time. In fact, we live in a day and an age, we look at our, our cultural uh, and political, social issues of our day, and so often we, the, our, our situations became more and more polarized. And neither side is listening to the other. Conservative, progressive, Democrat, Republican, pro-life, pro-choice, and you name it, no one's listening to each other. And we're all choosing to live in our echo chambers. And if I want to go find something that I think is true, I get on Google and I ask Google and I wait till I find an article that proves what I want it to say, what I, want, what I, what I believe already. It's called confirmation bias. It's what the psychologists call it. It's the same thing. It's simply not what Jesus would call not having ears to hear. It's a fake faith. And we receive this in this passage. Look with me. So this morning, as a way into the book of James, I want to contrast true faith with self-trust. I'm going to use this passage in Matthew. So true faith, look at the passage in front of you. True faith, first, does not test the teacher. Look at verse 39. This is so good. This is so, so, I'm sorry, not verse 39, verse 38. Um, it says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Now, what do they call Jesus here? See what they call him? They call him teacher. And in our day, a teacher is simply someone who informs. You know, they're, they're someone who maybe educates us. But in that day, a teacher wasn't just someone who informs. They were someone who transforms. They were someone who had a position of incredible authority. So they referred to Jesus as though they were disciples, as though they were followers, as though they were there to be changed by him. But what do they do here? This fake faith, it puts the teacher to the test. Interesting. The students are testing the teacher. Do you see how it's backwards? Teacher, we want a sign from you. We want to confirm that you really have the authority. We want to see that we want you to meet our expectations. When we say jump, we want you to say how high. We, we, we will decide if you're for real or not. We will sit in the position of real evaluation, of real authority, and decide if you're good or not. Real faith does not put Jesus, the teacher, to the test. It's the teacher who tests the students, not the students who test the teacher. In verse 39, Jesus answers, a wicked and adulterous generation, that is to say, a fake, a counterfeit generation, asks for a sign, but none will be given except for, the, except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he says, verse 40, for as, the, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus says, look, I'll tell you that I'm for real because you'll reject me and then God will vindicate me and show that I am on the right side. You will sit and test me and reject me and I will never be good enough for you but one day God will vindicate me and show that you are wrong so the first sign of true faith is that true faith does not test the teacher and I don't know about you but I'm so ready to test Jesus just I don't like my life gets hard I'm like what, what's up with this this is so stupid this is so dumb why is this happening I look at aspects of my job, aspects of my marriage, aspects of parenting, and I just think, this is so dumb. In fact, I just, God, this, you are so incompetent to run my life. But as we'll see in James, James has a whole different way of thinking about hardships and struggles that is so beautiful and so life-giving. 
That is, that, is so, um, that is so edifying and encouraging. We'll see, in, we'll see in James that God is not always suffering. He actually has a purpose and a plan for us in it. So what does true faith do? True faith does not test the teacher. Second, true faith, what, what, what does true faith do to? It turns at the warnings of the prophets. True faith turns around. It turns around. It actually hears warnings and listens to them. It takes them seriously. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now someone greater than Jonah is here. So true faith turns, true faith hears warnings, and it turns around. Let me ask you, when's the last time the warnings of Jesus terrified you? When's the last time the warnings of Jesus were received with gratitude? You know, think about that. Warnings are really, really helpful. When you're driving along and a sign says, the road is out, warning. That's kind of nice to know, right? Well, say you're driving along and you look in your dashboard and you see, you see a sign, the oil, the, chain, the, the oil light is on or the engine light is on. It's a warning. So that What? You don't destroy your engine. Jesus tells, gives us warnings, not so that he can be mean and be a killjoy. He gives us warnings so that we will listen and live. Recently, beautifully, one of you came up to me, and you, it was, I think it was in the context of the sermon, in the context of the service, you had heard Matthew 7, or a, a section of Matthew 7, where Jesus talks about, he says, many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and do miracles in your name, all these wonderful things? And Jesus says, in response, I will say to them, away from me. I never knew you. And you said, and it was so beautiful, you said, I heard that verse. I was like, holy, like, wow. I need to go examine that. I need to go think about that more. There's this kind of weightiness to the warnings of Jesus. True faith turns around. It doesn't put to the test. It doesn't test the teacher. It turns around at the warnings of the prophet Jesus who comes to warn us. The third, faith doesn't simply turn around, avoid. True faith tunes in to wisdom. True faith not only turns around at warnings, true faith tunes in to true wisdom. Look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. See, Solomon was known throughout, throughout the ancient world. Solomon was known as the one who understood everything. The one who understood how the world worked. You can go back to the beautiful passage. You go back to First Kings and you can First Kings chapter ten, and you can see this beautiful story of the Queen of Sheba and how she she hears of Solomon's wisdom. What does she do? She comes, as Jesus says, from the ends of the earth, and she she, she spends all her resources wanting to hear from him, wanting to sit at the feet of the one who is wisdom, so that she can live rightly, so that she can rule wisely, at great expense. She stops everything and goes and sits at his feet. And Jesus is saying, if you knew who I was, you would tune in, you would dial in to what I am trying to say to you. Why? See, here's the thing about Jesus. 
Jesus walks around. He walks around as if somehow he created the world. Like, who does this guy think he is? You know what I mean? As if somehow he, like, just knows how everything works. That's how he acts. I mean, you, you, you know, there was no, I mean, I, I, when, I was, when I was at Cambridge, I, you know, had the privilege of sitting at the feet of some of those brilliant men and, and women in the world. Just, just amazing scholars. And what's, what's so amazing about them is, seriously, the sign of a great scholar is this. Caution. They're, they're incredibly cautious. They're judicious. They're careful. They're not ready to make these grandiose statements. They're very humble in what they know. And they often admit what they don't know. And so they're careful, they're cautious. They, don't, they, say, they say, you know, I don't know about this, I don't know about this, I don't know about this. I do know this, I think I know this. They're very careful. Jesus never talks like that. He just says, I tell you the truth. Boom, and lays it out there. Who talks like that? I mean, who does that? That's crazy. There's no qualification. There's no like, yeah, I don't know about that one. You know, I mean, one time I was, I was, I was talking to a guy who was... Um, he was working with, uh, he was, he's working on, this is, this is actually a true story, that the Air Force, U.S. Air Force was trying to build a laser. It sounds, uh, it sounds like something from a movie, but we're trying to build this laser. It's called the Airborne Laser Program. We decided it would be a cool idea to have a laser on a, seven, on a 747. Anyway, so I was talking to this guy, and, uh, and he, he mentions this other guy. He's like, yeah, you think I'm smart, this other Ph.D. guy. He's really smart. And the way that he expressed how much smarter he was, he said, that guy's confused on a whole other level. Isn't that great? I love that line. And you think that, that's your intelligence is when you are confused at a whole different level. You're still confused, but you're confused at a whole different level. See, Jesus is never like, yeah, I don't know how that works. He's never like, ah, who knows? I mean, there's a couple, a couple lines that well, we, can, we can talk about where Jesus says, I don't know this or something. But it's simply a fact that he doesn't know. It's not like he doesn't have insight into you and me. So listen to this. What if Jesus knows you better than you know yourself? We live in an age of identity. In fact, I just overheard this the other day. I was out, 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 out and about, and a woman said to another woman, she said, you do you, girl. You remember that phrase? You do you. You be you. You do how you think you should do. And I thought about that, and I said, yeah, I mean, I should do me. You know, I should do me. I should, I should do that. I should, you know, whatever. I should, you know, I should try to be myself more often. And then I realized, like, I don't think I know who I am. I'm 42, I'm still learning who I am. And what if Jesus knows me better than I know me? If I'm going to do me, if I'm going to be myself, I'm going to self-identify. How can I self-identify? Because on Monday I'm different than I am on Tuesday. Wednesday I'm even more different. I change just regularly all the time. But Jesus calls us, here, here Jesus is saying that one greater than Solomon is here. One who has insight into all of life here right now. And am I dialed into it? Am I tuned in? True faith does not put the teacher to the test. True faith turns around when it hears warning. It stops and it's tracks. It hears warnings. And true faith also tunes in to real wisdom. I don't know if you are familiar or if he's very familiar with the... Um, the motivational speaker, Tony Robbins. It's amazing. This guy has built, uh, he's worth like five, I'm gonna say five or 600 million. He has built an empire on self-help. 
And I was reading this book called Quiet. It's a beautiful book. It's called Quiet. It's, it's about written by a woman. It's all about um, our, the, our cultural bias towards extroverts. And she talks about Tony, she goes, Tony Robbins is an example of extrovert leadership. And she actually attended one of his self-help weekends or something. And she describes that she, pays, she paid almost $1,000. And that was, that was the Bible's general admission. To get a front row was like four or 5000 and, this, and, and Tony Robbins talks about, hey, if you really want to be great, you should hang with the great people, and you can do that for $45,000. You can meet, I think it's once or twice a year, with 11 other amazing people like yourself and Tony at a great vacation spot, and you can rub, you're rub shoulders, and you're going you're gonna to have wisdom. But people, but people just flog. And I'm not dissing this with Tony Robbins. I've never actually listened to him. I don't know what he says. But the point is that these people pay thousands to sit before the feet of a guy like Tony Robbins. And Jesus is saying, don't you understand? One greater than Solomon is here to help you with wisdom in life right now. Not just pie in the sky when you die. I have wisdom that can help you right now. So true faith, true faith doesn't test the teacher. True faith turns around when it's warmed. It tunes in to true wisdom. And in so doing, is truly taken over. See, it's real faith. Real faith wants God, it wants Jesus to take over their lives. Do you want Jesus to take over your life? Do you want him to be in charge? Look at this last part of, of what Jesus says here. It's kind of confusing. Verse 43 through 45, Jesus talks about, he gives this example of a spirit and this idea of exorcism, and it's like, what, is, what is going on here? Let me kind of explain. See, in Jesus' day, humans, per people, individual persons, were often compared to houses. Why is that? Well, because a house was seen as a place where someone reigns, someone's in charge, there's a master of the household, and the same with the body. If someone's in charge of my body, hopefully me, right? And so the, a house here is, 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 the, is the example, is, is the uh, analogy for a body. So it's when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. So the idea here is that Jesus imagines a person who has, a, has an evil spirit, and that evil spirit is cast out, that spirit is, is, has, is taking over, is controlling that person in a way that's leading to death or leading to destruction, and that, that, spirit, that evil spirit's removed. Jesus exercises that spirit from the person. And Jesus says when it leaves, it, it, it leaves and goes through arid places. I don't even know why, why it's arid places. I could guess, but we don't really know. But it, the point is that it leaves the person. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. By the house, it means to the person, to the body that I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house that is the person with no one in charge yet. There's no direction. There's no one actually uh, taking over the person. The house is unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order, but no one is actually guiding or leading it. Jesus has in mind, has in view, the peop uh, persons among the community of faith who've decided, you know what? I don't want my old way of life. I know what I shouldn't do anymore. And so they, by, by, through forgiveness and coming into the church, they, they've left some of their former ways. They no longer do these bad things anymore. But they haven't made any further commitments. They haven't set an agenda for their lives. They haven't surrendered themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
They haven't said, you know what? I'm going to tune in to the wisdom of the one who is greater than Solomon. I'm going to go look at, I'm going to reevaluate everything in my life and live it according to the, the love, the law of the one who is love. And so this evil spirit returns and finds that everything's just, no, nothing's really in charge yet. And then what does it do? Verse 45, then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Jesus says, if you aren't pursuing the Lord in the community of faith, you can end up in a place that is worse than you'd ever come in before. You become filled with judgmentalism, self-righteousness, presuming that God is on your side when in truth, he's nowhere near. Simply showing up on Sunday morning, simply you know, going through the motions doesn't do anything. James and Jesus are after a faith that is fully committed, that has surrendered itself, and that is committed to a life of love. Gang. You know, it's so beautiful. You know, some of you come to me or through dis- discussions, we, we, we have these times together of just beautiful counseling. Sometimes it's formal counseling in my office. Other times it's over a beer. And it's so beautiful to see the ways that some of you have at great cost to yourself, at great risk, followed the way of wisdom. And there are times, seriously, when I come to you and I say, I say, look, you come to me and say, hey, look, this is what's going on in my marriage. Or this is what's going on at work. Or this is what's going on in my heart right now. And I'm like, look, I think what Jesus would say to you, we open scripture together. I say, Jesus is asking you to do something that every bone in your body does not want you to do. But believe me, it is the way to life. And it is so awesome. It is so awesome to see some of you go like, yep, okay, let's do this. And you do it. It's so awesome to see. But sometimes, sometimes, gang, either proactively or passively, I will come to you or we'll talk and I'll say, hey, I love you so much. This is not, it's not okay anymore. This is going to hurt you. This will destroy you. And you say, look, I don't want any part of it. And I'm not here, I'm not not the Pope, okay? My counsel could be wrong. And I'm not somehow inherently wiser than anyone else. I just, as a pastor, you live a thousand lives. You see, you watch a lot of people do great, and you see a lot of people totally sabotage their lives and walk off a cliff. It's for real. People destroy their lives. And all around us is a voice saying, just pick your own way and all ways are equal. They're not. They're not. And Jesus here is calling us to tune in. He wants us to turn around, to turn away, to tune in so that we can be truly taken over, to be truly know his lordship in our lives. And to know his lordship is to know the the authority, the expertise of one who will lead us to the path of life. See, real faith wants to be taken over. He wants to be taken over. True faith listens. Let me close with this story here. It's taken from... Um, just as uh, Sarah and I recently had watched uh, Walk the Line again, which is a, a movie uh, about Johnny Cash, and it got me thinking about just more of his life, and I wanted to look into it more. There's a, there's a key event, you know, according to Cash in his life, when he is in, uh, 
He's in, uh, he's in Georgia. This, I don't know where this is in Georgia, but there's a, at the time, this is in the, I want to say in uh, the 60s, when there's a, a guy named Ralph Jones. He was the sheriff of Walker County, Georgia. And he was your sort of typical rural county law officer in, in, again, it was in northwest Georgia area. And he was, he was just a, a, apparently a wonderful sheriff. He was friendly to his constituents. He was tough on hard hardened criminals. He was sympathetic with all, with all the locals within his jurisdiction. And one, uh, one night, uh, he, um, he got a phone call from one of his deputies, and uh, his deputy had brought in a certain Johnny Cash. <laughs> Apparently, Cash had been out you know, drinking, and uh, he, he, you know, he was a drug addict for you know, a part of his life, and uh, he was out um, trying to do something, and they brought him in. He was belligerent. In fact, he tried to... to um, What's the word? He tried to bribe the deputy with, you know, hundreds of dollars, saying, just let me go, and the deputy wouldn't have it, so he brought him in. And this sheriff, um, upon meeting Cash, uh, took Cash out of the cell, and he took him to his office. And that morning, he did a couple things. He didn't just throw the book at Cash. He didn't just let him go because he was a big fan of Cash, because he was. He sat down, and he talked to him. And he warned him. He said, what are you doing with your life? Is this really what you want? And he challenged him. He confronted him. And then he gave him a vision of something bigger. Don't you think that you could do more? Don't you think you could do something different, something greater? Is this really what your life is about? And what's so amazing is in his reflections, in his work, Cash actually looks back to that moment in time and says that was the single most influential conversation I ever had. This person was someone I, he told it to me straight, admonished me, told me to turn my life around, told me to tune in. It's an act of love. Johnny Cash credited Jones with turning his life around. Although from time to time he would still return to drugs, he always gave credit to the rural Georgia sheriff for helping him fight his demons. On the national television show This Is Your Life in 1971, Cash formally thanked Jones, who was a surprise guest on the show, for saving his life. In fact, to show his appreciation, Cash returned back to the Lafayette, to Lafayette that area in Georgia, and performed a, ben- a benefit concert, which raised you know, money for, for the county. So I just, I share that. I'm asking this morning, are you in your little echo chamber? Are you putting Jesus to the test, God to the test? It's not good enough. I mean, that was a mistake. That was dumb. I don't like that. Or in faith, are we surrendering ourselves to the teacher who is love? The teacher who laid down his life for you and for me. The teacher who has warnings that we are to heed. A teacher who has wisdom for us to tune into so that he can truly take us over. You know, I don't, let me just close with, uh, there was a beautiful, uh, Brenda, Brenda P- uh, Peterson's not here, is she? Brenda, okay, good, I can tell this, she's not here. Brenda, um, Brenda, how do you know Brenda? Brenda is an amazing woman. I'm just amazing. She, uh, she's a, she's a, one of the things that she does, she wears she has several jobs, and one of them is that she is a, um, a, a, school, a school bus driver. And she, she drives around, especially uh, children who have various disabilities uh, and uh, need further resources, and she is a mother to these children. 
And she will tell me these stories about how these, these, a lot of these children come from very, very difficult circumstances. And it's so beautiful. And, and the children, they just, they know that, that Brenda loves her and, and, and that she loves them and, and they love her. And she's so funny. She talks about how she loves them, but at times she has to be tough on them. You know, they're just kids. They're out there and they're, they're mounting around. And I guess according to protocol, you have to sit and look straight. You can't be whatever. And so at times she will get up. She'll stop the bus. She'll turn around. She'll get up and look at her and she'll say, hey, kids, turn around and tune in. I'm talking to you. <laughs> and why does she do that? Does she have the right to do that? Oh, yeah, because she loves them. She'll do anything for them. She has a voice of authority, and it's a voice of love. And that, brothers and sisters, is the voice of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we turn to contemplate, to actually taste the body and the blood of your son, Jesus, we just rejoice. Father, we also look to ourselves in shame as we realize how how much we hold on to our foolishness, how convinced we are that we are so brilliant, how convinced we are that we know what's best for us. Father, would you, would you give us a faith? A faith is a gift, and we ask for it right now. Would you give us a faith that works, a faith that is effective, that actually is better, but also a faith that is active, that's so active, active in love, the way a son loves a father, the way a child loves a parent. Father, would we go about all the things that you've called us to do, not because we have to, but because we get to. Show us the beauty of your law, the beauty of your ways. Father, as we turn to consider your Lord's, the Lord's t- the table, the table that you have given us, we recall how you, in your infinite love, gave your son for us how he shared fully in our human nature, becoming one of us, enduring all manner of suffering and struggle and loneliness and hardship and betrayal, just like like the rest of us. And he lived and died as one of us in order to reconcile us to you. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And Father, it is his death that we now proclaim, and it is in his glorious name that we pray. Amen.